All right. Well, we're in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. Well, this last week I read a story about a church in which the choir loft actually sat below the um, level of the congregation. So you would just kind of see the, the top of them. And uh, running across the entire platform was one of those modesty rails, kind of a velvet-draped railing. And so the choir members realized that, you know, they had two or three services. After the first service, after they, the second service, they'd finish singing their song. They could just kind of disappear. They could get down on their hands and knees and scoot out the side door uh, while the service is going on. And then uh, run across the street to the Dunkin' Donuts, get some donuts, and then make their way back. Well, one Sunday, an elderly man <laughs> uh, did this, and he didn't have time to eat his donuts, so he just brought them back in a bag. And he got to the door where you kind of scoot out there and sneak back into your place. And uh, he had to get down on all fours to crawl, and so he put the bag in his mouth, and he started crawling, and all of a sudden the congregation started laughing. And he looked up, and he was on the wrong side of that little velvet curtain. <laughs> and they all saw him with his bag of donuts. He was found out. Um, you know, that's kind of funny, but when you stop and think about it, it's a sad commentary on the condition of sometimes how we approach worship. Um, you know, here was a choir who probably just sang a wonderful hymn of uh, praise to the Almighty God and they're crawling out on their hands and knees to go get a bag of donuts. Um, you know, the one thing that we always want to keep in front of us as we come here, and, and especially on Sunday mornings and we were worshiping God, is that um, God sees both sides of the railing. <laughs> okay, he sees what goes on before church. He sees what goes on after church. He sees the whole thing. You're not fooling God. You may fool everybody else, but you're not fooling God. And, and I think... As a Bible-believing church, we really need to bring back that reverence that we're supposed to have that when we come to worship a God who's holy, uh, who has given us everything we have. And, um, you know, a lot of times the, the fellowship is wonderful, the singing is good, the, hopefully the Bible teaching is faithful. Uh, but a lot of times we forget who we're really here to worship. And so we need to refocus sometimes our hearts and it's easy to get into the the habit of just playing church um, coming to church without any encounter with God whatsoever you can do that very easily today uh, what I want to do is I want to read through the text and kind of give you a little outline there the mission the method the music the mistake the months and the mad wife and you'll see these things as we read through this and then I want to go back and maybe hit on some of the things that we can apply to our own lives. And we'll make some comments as we read through. So it's, it starts there in verse 1. Um, remember that that here uh, Israel's been fighting, right, the civil war. And uh, finally it's over. Finally David's the king of all of Israel. And uh, the Philistines are now... You know, he, he, he's defeated them in chapter 5. And so, you know, that was a, a, a glorious thing. But now we see that David has kind of a renewed interest in bringing the ark 
to uh, Jerusalem. And so it starts off there. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel. 30,000. That's a lot of men. <laughs> Remember, he had a little band of 400 before when he was running around, uh, running from Saul. Now he's got 30,000 because it's, it's all united Israel. And these are ones that are chosen by David himself. Um, verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, which is uh, kind of a, a funny name for a town in Israel. But remember, this was ruled by the Philistines. So this is a, a pagan name. Um, named after their God, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. So I want to talk a little bit about this. You know, the the main lesson here in in verse 6 is is David bringing this Ark, um, the Ark of the Covenant, into Jerusalem. He's regained Jerusalem. He, it's, it's their city, and, and now he's, he's going to bring this in here. David has been king now for probably over seven years. Uh, the king kingdom, which was once divided, is now united. It's consolidated under his rule. Remember, he took over just over king of Judah, and, and then eventually had a little rebellion on his hand, and then eventually he was made king of all of Israel. And so he wanted to make worship kind of the central figure here. And to do that, he proposed bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which is the central piece of the, of the Mosaic Tabernacle, to Jerusalem. This is, this, the, the Ark basically uh, was a representat- representation of the presence of God to the people of Israel. That's really what it was. And so that was the mission, to bring this thing here uh, to Jerusalem. And um, verse 3 says, And they carried the ark on a new cart. Now, if you know anything about how they were to carry the ark, you realize that they're doing this the wrong way. The Old Testament tells them very clearly that they were to carry it with poles put through the rings. They weren't to touch it. All right, that was just a big no-no. Uh, that was the last thing they were supposed to do was touch the Ark of the Covenant. As a matter of fact, when it was when it was moved at all, it was supposed to be covered entirely. They weren't even supposed to look at it. That's how holy this thing was. It, it de- denoted the presence of of God in their presence. So here they they put it on this cart, and they probably got that idea from who. Remember who else put the the Philistines, right? They're, yeah, it worked for them, you know. <laughs> let's let's try that. And that's a good lesson for us to realize, you know what, things that necessarily might work in the world don't always work in God's economy, don't always work in the church. And that's probably one of the big downfalls of modern day churches is they take all the the information they gathered from the world, the way they do things in corporate world, and they try to apply it to the model of the church, thinking, well, it's just another organization. It's not. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's something that's living. It's, it's, it's made up of, of, of people. Um, it's not just an, another organization. And so they carried this, the Ark of, the, of God on a new cart, 
and brought it out of the house of uh, Abinadab, which was on the hill. Remember, that's where uh, it was back in First uh, First Samuel chapter, I think, 7 tells us a little bit about uh, Abinadab. And, you know, he was kind of given charge of this thing. And his, uh, his sons, Uzzah and Ahio, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So here they are. They have the ark of God on this cart. They're taking it down the path. And uh, this is why God basically told them to carry it with poles, not to put it on an ark. Okay, we're going to find out what happens. Uh, and this is a c- celebratory event. They have music going on. Verse 5 says that David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines. Remember, David was a musician himself. And castanets and cymbals. So they had all kinds of, of celebratory music going on. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now you look at that and you go, well, you know, if you look back at, uh, or at First Chronicles, remember First Chronicles is kind of an overview of the book of Samuel and, and Kings. First Chronicles 13, it kind of gives us a, a similar account. It says, So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of, of Egypt to bring up the ark of God to Kiriath-Jerim, just another name for that town. And David and all Israel went up to Balal, and um, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel celebrating before the Lord with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And verse 9 says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, another name, uh, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. So here you have the ark precariously placed on this new cart. And the oxen stumbles, the ark is going to tip over, and this gentleman reaches out and he took hold of something they weren't to take hold of. And you say, well, okay. Um, Clearly, was this an innocent mistake? No. He was given charge of the ark. He was given charge of this holy utensil of God, and he should have known better. All right? It would be... Um, akin to, you know, say say a police officer encountering somebody and he just pulls his gun out and shoots him. Just, to, you know, for whatever. Well, I've, you know, I felt threatened. Well, he didn't have a gun. He wasn't approaching you. You would say, wait a minute. No, you should know better. You're a police officer. You're, in, you know, that weapon is given to you. You have to have custody of that weapon. You, you have to take charge of it. You can't just go around shooting people. Well, same thing here. They were trained in how to handle these things. And so, unfortunately, you look at what happens to poor Uzzah, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Uh, 
See, it doesn't matter how innocently or reactive this was. It was in direct violation of what God told them to do. If you look at Numbers chapter 4, Numbers chapter 4, God is, always gives us instructions for things. Numbers 4, uh, 15, 4.14, They shall put on it all the utensils of the altar, which are used for the service there, and the fire pans, and the forks, and the shovels, and all the basins, and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread it uh, on it a covering of goat string, and shall put it and shall put it in its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out after that, the sons of Kohath, they were given charge of it, shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Ark was considered one of these holy things. And so, clearly, God, you know, he didn't speak in um, gibberish. He spoke very clearly to them. And... They should have known better. And so here you have this guy that just reaches out and, hey, I don't want to fall off the cart. And wow, boom, he's dead. I mean, I mean, when you stop and think about that, uh, you know, this has happened before. And it will happen again in, in Scripture when God just smites somebody. And if you go through, we don't have time tonight, but if you go through, even in the New Testament, when people were smitten like that by God, they were all smitten for the same reason. They were presuming on God and who he was. Maybe on his grace. Uh, maybe thinking, well, he didn't really mean this. And, and they're presuming something about God. And we have to stop and remember that our God is holy. He's set apart. There's none like him. All right. And so when he tells us to do something in a certain way, we should definitely pay attention to it. That's why it's so important to study, to study through the New Testament. What does the Bible say about worship? What does the Bible say about the structure of the church, the order of the church? What does the Bible say about men's roles in the church? What does the Bible say about women's roles in the church? All those things are important. Why? Because they're given to us by God. That's why when we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to cover a lot of those things. All right? Uh, And so when we see this, at first we're kind of like, wow, that was a little overkill. (laughs) Don't you think, God? I mean, you zapped the guy. All he was trying to do was steady the ark. Well, it should have never been on the cart in the first place. Never should have been on the cart in the first place. And so he is dead. And it says in verse 8 there, And David was angry because, uh, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, or uh, smitten Uzzah, broken out against uh, Uzzah. And a lot of times that, that word Perez means basically to strike out against. And so D- David kind of tells the people, hey, we, you know, th- this, is, this is something we need to remember. <laughs> and he was upset, I think, because more probably at himself. All right? Because 
you know, he 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 kind of knew this was a result of even his own carelessness in transporting the ark. He should have made sure that everything was taken care of. And here, one of his men is dead. And it says in verse nine, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, "How can the ark of the Lord come to me?" So he begins to question the whole idea of even bringing the ark. And he's reminded of the holiness of God. He's reminded of even the danger it is to worship God. We don't think of that. But sometimes we have to understand that, you know, our God, we can put ourselves in pretty precarious situations if we're doing things the wrong way. Uh, What's interesting is when you look at this story of the ark in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there's kind of two stories here. And one commentary kind of drew these out, and it was interesting. Uh, each one has similarities. If you, if you look back when the ark, return, the ark returns on a cart in 1 Samuel chapter 6, um, it, it comes back on a cart. Uh, God struck down the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And here someone struck down the same word in 2 Samuel 6-7. The ark resides temporarily... Uh, same thing, First uh, Samuel seven, Second Samuel six. The ark is in exile in Gentile hands. The key difference between these two stories is that First Samuel the ark is removed from the tabernacle, while in Second Samuel it's returning to the tabernacle. Pretty interesting. In First Samuel chapter four, Saul lost thirty thousand men. Remember that. Now in Second Samuel chapter six, he's bringing thirty thousand men with him, accompanying the ark home. In 1 Samuel 5, uh, or in, in 2 Samuel 5, 16, David had conquered Jerusalem and he led, it led to the establishment of his house in both senses, okay, of, of the word, a palace and a family. And, and now here, God has won this victory. And chapter 6 is God's victory parade. They're kind of celebrating this and they're establishing his house. God had gone out in front in the battle in chapter 5, verse 24. Now he goes out in front on the victory parade. Another comparison was David and his men escort the ark on a cart to Jerusalem, which is, you know, this, this whole thing of this, this celebration, how this happens. Um, the problem was, is they, they made this crucial mistake. They took for granted... Well, you know, the, the Philistines did this. It's probably a more economic way to do this, a little easier, makes more sense. You know, why do we have to carry these poles and do all this? Let's just throw it on this cart. Well, they pay a severe price as a result. And so David is afraid of the ark almost in a not necessarily a, a good way. And it says, so that David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. So he just kind of says, no, I'm not going to do this. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. He was a, a servant of Edom. It, it can refer, MacArthur says, to someone from the Philistine city of Gath. But he says it's better here to see a term related to Gath-Rimon, which is the Levitical uh, city. So, the, the, you know, whether he actually turned it over to who he turned it over to were uncertain. But... When he did this, it, it stayed there in this guy's house 
Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. So once again, you have this lapse. They, 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 they look at the ark and they say, wow, okay, we have to kind of uh, take charge of this thing. And they try to bring it into Jerusalem. They do it the wrong way. God zaps one of the guys as a result of reaching out and touching it, which he shouldn't have done. Everybody gets fearful. They say, oh, let's just put the ark over here for a while. <laughs> let's let, let God cool down. But while it's there for three months, verse 11, it says, The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. So this was something that, you know, Israel's watching this. They're seeing, wow, he's getting blessed by having this ark in his possession. Verse 12, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So, David, being king and being a leader, realizes, hey, you know what? This isn't right. We need to get this ark back. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And look at what, how they do this. It's, it's, this is kind of interesting. It says, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. So notice, they're not carrying it, or they're not putting it on a cart anymore. They're carrying it the way... God prescribed it. They had poles through it, and they had men carrying this ark. And it says that when uh, they had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So he's probably thinking, okay, let's test this out. (laughs) You guys go get the ark, get the poles. We're going to try to do this the right way. All right, let's go. <laughs> and they start marching. And it's, okay, I think we're safe. Let's do a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean they did one every six steps. It was just the first six steps and the, and the last. Uh, but the idea that it was almost like a, a kind of a, a, a test walk there, make sure these guys don't drop dead on us first before we get too far down the road. And they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. This speaks of David's, really, his worshipful heart. All right? Some people, you know, um, today, you know, you can, you, can, you can be in some churches and it's kind of like the frozen chosen, you know? I mean, nobody whimpers a sound. Uh, when we're called to worship, we're called to worship with order. All right? But that doesn't mean, you know, you, you, you can't say an amen or whatever. You don't want to be disruptive, clearly, because there's order in the church. You don't want to be distracted to people. But at the same time, you know, if, if, if the pastor or the teacher says something that you, you feel is, is, uh, has blessed you or you want to agree with, you know, an amen, something like that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's perfectly okay. Here, David is actually dancing, notice, before the Lord with all his might. All right? There's an audience of one person here. David isn't out there dancing, you know, to be seen by the rest of his entourage. Like, look at me, you know. That's not his focus. His focus is on, on, Lord, on the Lord. And so it, it's, it, it's important because he's, it says that David was wearing a linen ephod. That was the, the, the kind of the, the proper dress for him to wear. Um, and then it says, so David and all the house of Israel went, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. 
And so it was gone for three months. They saw it, another household being blessed as a result of having the ark there. And David realizes, no, we should be in possession of the ark. Uh, we're God's chosen people. We're, we're going to go get this ark. And they did it the right way this time. And uh, they had a celebratory march with the ark, which was fine. But there's only one problem. Michal, remember, his, one of his wives was upset. And it says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, remember, she is the former king's daughter, looked out of the window and saw King David, her husband, leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Isn't that interesting? You'd think that as a wife she'd be down there dancing with her husband, you know, celebrating. Wow, the ark's coming back. This is great. No, I think the one thing that Michal picked up from her dad, Saul, was her pride. All right, she was jealous even of her own husband, I believe, of the accolades he was receiving. I mean, he was king after all. And it says that she, she, she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. And that basically means Yahweh of angels. He's over all the angels. Hosts is another word for angels. And distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. A lot of people, a lot of food going out here. And then all the people departed to their own house. And David comes back home, returned to bless his household. <laughs> hey, aren't you guys excited? But his wife is waiting for him at the door. <laughs> She's not a happy camper. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today. Now, that doesn't mean he was naked. Okay, that just means he wasn't wearing the appropriate royal uh, uh, vestments that he should have been wearing as king. You know, probably hard to dance with. So he wanted to worship the Lord. He probably took off the outer garments, was, had the ephod on. And it says, un shamelessly uncovers himself. You know, it, you can just t see that she's almost mocking him before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So you can see this jealousy setting in and her, her, her uh, just condemnation of David here, her husband, the king, is really um, uncalled for. All right, she's making it out to be that he did something shameful here where he was really worshiping the lord uh, it wasn't that he was he was he was worshiping god and god alone he didn't care what other people thought and david said to michal it was before the lord verse 21 who chose me above your father so you can see that they got some issues going on right i mean just the idea that he would say that <laughs> you know i i saw the I don't know if you saw the interview with President Trump and Leslie Stahl the other day. And at one point in the interview, 
I think he just got fed up and he says, well, that's why I'm president and you're not. <laughs> and I thought, whoa. You know, that's kind of what David's doing here. You know, he's, he's pulling one of those. Um, he says, uh, it was before the Lord and, he, and God chose me above your father, Saul, and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. So he kind of doubles down on it. He just says, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. We don't know why. We don't know if that was something that God did or simply um, David ceased to have any intimate relationships with her um, where she could get pregnant. But either way, it, it prevented her from having any kind of successor to David's throne, which was kind of like a thumb in your eye. Um, and so you see this chapter and you say, okay, well, how does this, I mean, how does this come home to us? All right. Uh, well, the one thing I think that, that it points out is, is worship. When we're worshiping the Lord, it should be a reverent response to God's holy presence. It should be a reverent response to God's holy presence. Um, God's holy presence should be the focus of true corporate worship. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to put on a show Sunday mornings. We're not called to entertain everybody. Um, when you stop and think of God and you think of his omnipresence, he's everywhere at the same time. I mean, just stop and think about that for a second. There's no place that God is not. Uh, but unfortunately, his presence isn't realized everywhere, is it? His realized presence is what I'm talking about. See, when God people come together for worship, when we come together to worship, even on a Sunday, or even come together for a Wednesday night Bible study, or a women's Bible study, or a prayer meeting, whatever, we ought to focus on His presence, His holy presence among us. That's that's so important because it keeps things in perspective. You know, um, especially in, in smaller churches. You know, sometimes on a Sunday morning, you know, <laughs> we don't have a big crowd. Can you imagine if we looked out there and said, oh, gosh, uh, we only have 25 people today. Should we even do worship? Let's just go home. Let's just go home. I mean, there are people that are geared that way. You know, I learned early on in ministry, in youth ministry especially, you know, you'd plan a big event for 50, 60 kids, and you'd have three show up <laughs> for whatever reason. And you'd be like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And I remember some of the, you know, we'd have more youth workers there than we would have youth. And some of them would say, well, let's just cancel. I said, what, what about the three kids that came? Right? I mean, they, they, they gave up their time. They're here. Now we're going to do this thing. The other one, they, they, they miss out. Too bad. And so we have to keep things focused on who we're worshiping and why. Uh, God's holy presence was symbolized in the ark. That was, that was very clear. It says there that in the text, it says that the, the ark is called by the name, the name of God. It, it represents God himself. 
his character, his holiness, his glory. And then second, we're told that God is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark there, it tells us. And the cherubim's a type of winged angel. Uh, the ark itself was about three and three quarters feet long by two and a quarter feet wide and about two and a quarter feet high. So it wasn't, you know, a huge, like a, probably like a, you know, a foot chest or a bed chest you'd have at the foot of your bed. It was made of wood overlaid with gold. And inside of the ark contained the two tablets of stone that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. It contained Aaron's rod. It contained a sample of the manna that God had given them. It was a presence and a reminder to Israel of God's presence. And so on top of the ark, on the covering of the the lid of the ark, was what they would call the mercy seat. It's a solid slab of gold. And uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in and he would sacrifice an animal, animal and he would sprinkle blood of the sacrificed lamb on that mercy seat. And the ark itself was kept in the Holy of Holies and was always kept covered even when it was uh, being moved, especially it was being moved on a journey. It had to be covered. That was just very clear. Um, And it was the the symbol of God's meeting with his people based on the atonement of that sacrifice. And all all those sacrifices looked forward to what? To Christ's sacrifice. All right? Uh, it would be kind of like the cross today. The cross is a symbol of Christ's atonement for us. Um, the Lord told Moses in Exodus twenty-five, twenty-two, and there I will meet with you. It was it was a type, really, of of Christ. Even the materials, uh, the gold and the wood, typified the person of Christ, uh, both God and man. So when we gather together as God's people, we gather onto the Lord Jesus Christ who is in our midst whenever we meet. It doesn't matter whether we have one or two. You, know, you hear some people say, well, you know, if you have two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. That's not what that's talking about if you look at that text. It's not talking about a prayer meeting. I was taught that, or I assumed I was taught that early on in, in ministry, and I always thought, well, well, what if it's just me praying? Does that mean God's not there? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of weird, right? Well, also, you have to look at God's holy presence is an awesome thing. When it talks here in, cha- in verse 2 of chapter 6, the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of Yahweh of hosts, okay, uh, it's, it's important that we understand that this represented the holiness and the, the, um, just the awesomeness of God, that he was willing to be in their presence at all, was an overwhelming thing. It's not to be taken lightly. And I think a lot of times, you know, we think of worship service, what do we think of? We think of music. Well, you know what? When we pass that little magic bag around, that little magician's bag or whatever, the offering bag, all right? Some people say it looks like a magician's bag. You know, when you give your offering, that's just as much part of worship as, you know, fellowship, as coming over here and eating food together, all that. It's, it's all part of our, our worship time together, and we shouldn't be careless about that. We shouldn't be flippant, flippant about it. Um, you know, there's too many believers today, you know, refer to God as the, you know, the old man upstairs. Or That's, that's uncalled for. That's, that's not how God is to be addressed. Uh, 
as we gather to worship, it would transform us. It would transform our worship, definitely, if we focus on the truth that we're gathering in God's holy presence to realize right now that Christ is here amongst us, that God is here amongst us. Um, I mean, we come and we fellowship with each other. That's, that's fine. But that's not the primary reason we come. Uh, we should come primarily to meet with God. Well, secondly, reverence in God's presence should be our response in true corporate worship. It, we should have a kind of a, I call it a reverential awe. It doesn't mean we're boring or, you know, we, we just come in and don't say anything or whatever. But, you know, when you look at the Old Testament, you see this ark as the visible symbol of God's presence among his people. You would think that there would be a uniform response to God's presence. You'd think that, okay, if God was going to be present among you, you, you would respond in a similar way. Well, when you look back over the 75 years and you trace, retrace the history of the ark, you see all kinds of responses to the presence of God by the people. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we saw the Israelites look at the ark of God, remember, as a good luck charm. <laughs> remember that? The worship of God was a dead ritual for most of Israel at the time. And the two priestly sons of Eli, they were corrupted. They were committing immorality with women at the doorway of the tabernacle. I mean, can you even imagine? And when they encountered difficulties with their enemy, the Philistines, what did they do in chapter 4? Someone says, hey, let's go get that ark thing and we'll carry it into battle with this. And that'll give us a good luck charm. We'll win then. They were using it as a good luck charm. Well, you remember how the battle ended, right? They were defeated. They got wiped out. The ark was captured by who? The Philistines. They said, yeah, we want that thing. A lot of times, believers today use church or going to church, things like that, kind of like a good luck charm. That's how they view it. Got to go put in my time, and if I don't, got to get me, you know. Uh, sad. You have to think that way. You want to make sure that God's going to solve all your problems and do all that. And if you don't even go to church, well, you can expect him not to do that. No, we should come to church, but we should come to church for the right reasons, right? We shouldn't come to church because we made some bartering agreement with God. Hey, I'll come do my time on Sunday, but you've got to bless me the other six days. Uh, that's not how it works. People like that know nothing about the holy presence of God. And, and this was Israel back in the time. They didn't understand what it meant to have the ark in their presence. They just thought, well, it's just going to help us deal with this battle. And then we went to 1 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines have the ark. And you remember what happened. A plague. Right? That's, how they, that's what happened to them. They, they sat the ark next to their god, the, the Dagon, and... Uh, the Lord caused their, their, their little idol to fall over. They set it back up. The next day they came in, the head's knocked off, the hands are off, and they try to glue it back together and put it back up. Finally, they, 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 they got this plague. Uh, tumors, it was called. It could have been hemorrhoids. That's what a lot of commentators believe. You can only imagine how painful that would be. So, you know, as you imagine, the Philistines wanted to get rid of the ark as quick as possible. They were uncomfortable, quite literally, uh, with the presence of God. 
They, that's what that was to them. They're uncomfortable around those who manifest the presence of the Lord. There are people like that today. You know, uh, the guy across the street, he came over when we were remodeling. Ken remembers this years ago. When we were modeling the church. He goes, oh, what are you guys doing in there? You know, so when we had a good relationship with him. Oh, looks good. You know, come on in. Check. Oh, I'm, uh, no, I can't go in there. There's no way I'd go in there. I mean, I thought he was going to run across the street. It's just a building. What do you mean? Oh, no, no, no. Roof would fall in. You know, he's uncomfortable with the presence of God. Hence, he's uncomfortable with us every Sunday. But that's okay. We're praying for him. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 7, and even in 2 Samuel 6, you see the reaction of Abinadab. And it's almost like ho-hum, you know. The Philistines sent the ark back to Israel on a cart, and it wound up in the house of Abinadab. It had been there for almost 70 years by the time David's time came around. And you know what? You don't have any record, biblical record, that anything happened as a result of the ark being in his presence or in his household. Nothing. We're going to see in a minute what we read about Obed-Edom's when, when he had the ark just for three months. What did it result in? Great blessing, right? Not, not for Abinadab, nothing. And you know what? There's, there's some people today that come to church regularly. They can come to church for years where God is present amongst his people. But it has no appreciable effect on their life whatsoever. It happens all the time. Um, You can be in the very presence of God and have it glance right off if your heart isn't seeking after him. And then we come to Uzzah, the part in our text tonight, and I mean, you know, I mean, if Uzzah could say anything when everybody went, <gasps> when he grabbed the hold of the ark, he probably would have said something like, hey, don't have a cow. You know, it's not a big deal. He's just steady in the ark and boom, he's dead. Right. Um, but he didn't take seriously God's commands. And, you know, he, he just reached out his hand to steady it and God struck him dead on the spot. Um, I mean, even David, as a result, got angry at God. He was just trying to help, wasn't he? What, what, you know. But that was his problem. He wanted to help in his own way. He saw no difference between the ark and anything else that would have been on that cart that would have fallen over. And sometimes, you know, I mean, he had grown up with the ark in his home. He grew complacent. What's the big deal, probably? And I think sometimes we see people that grow up in our churches from, you know, Sunday school all the way up to adulthood. And what do they do? They just grow complacent. Yeah, I go to church. That's what I do. You know, they don't come here to worship God. They just come to church because they've always come to church. Sometimes they don't even know why they come to church. We don't want to be those people. R.C. Sproul points out in his book on the holiness of God that Uzzah did, what Uzzah did was an act of arrogance. He assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. See, and that's what God knew. God would have been fine with that ark falling off the cart, right? Okay, you put the poles through it, you pick it back up the right way, but as soon as he touched it, that was it. Game over. Yep. 
Well, I think that's why David got angry because I think partly in his, himself, I think they should have known better. Now, remember, it wasn't, you know, this was something that was given to Israel, right? So when the Philistines had it, I mean, I'm, they probably handled it and did all kinds of stuff to it, right? Well, God didn't zap all them dead, all right? So it, it wasn't like this, uh, you know, this this aura about this box, that, but it, it was what it was represented to the Israeli people by God himself, okay? The pagans had it, and they weren't all wiped out, right? And so it, it's, it's, it's clear here that God, even though he gave these rules and he gave these regulations, you can still see God's grace. All right? Because you're probably right. There's probably other people that looked at it, the solid or whatever, and God didn't wipe them out. But I think that final breach of, the, of the, that, that, that holiness factor there that they just thought, well, God's got to make an example here. And you see God do that with Israel, right? Over and over and over again. They get kind of complacent. You know, God gets them out of a bind. And, oh, yeah, this is great. What, and they go okay for a little bit. And then they're right back to being entertained by the world or being drawn to the, the pagan side of things. And God's got to reach down and, and somehow get their attention again. And he does the same thing with us, by the way, in our own Christian lives. You know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's those things that come into our lives, whether it's health or financial relationship or somebody passes away whatever kind of rattles our cage a little bit and it's it's god kind of hey you need to refocus you know you got to get your eyes on the right things uh i was talking to somebody today at the coffee shop by the way my friend joe's home now he's still recovering he's not back 100 percent yet but he, he is home at least and somebody was talking about that and they said yeah you know i just remember for years you know we've talked about that day when he would retire 37 years and now he can barely walk and all the dreams of fishing and hunting and <laughs> gone literally i mean hopefully he recovers to the point where he can do some of those things and uh the person said man that that that's that's hard to understand i said well you know the, the bible says we're not guaranteed tomorrow we're not guaranteed our next breath the Bible says our, our life is like a vapor. It says that. Yeah, that's what it says. And they were just blown away by that. And they said, wow, we better make sure we have our priorities right. That's exactly what, you know, the Bible says. And see, we can't presume on the Lord. And that's that, that sin of presumption that's gotten all these people in the Bible where you see them zapped like that. That's, that's the sin that they're really they're presuming on, on who God is in their their relationship with him. Another response was David, who got angry here in our text. Um, and he, he grew, afraid, not, grew afraid, not in a healthy fear of the Lord, but an unhealthy fear. And so he kind of asked the question, how can the, can the ark come to me? Um, I think there was some embarrassment, some pride, um, God had not done things David's way. This didn't work out. They've been taking this ark, ark all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, he kind of let down his guard and let them do it however they wanted to. And it kind of rained on his parade, you might say. And so he was angry. Uh, 
But the problem wasn't that God hadn't done things David's way. The problem was that David hadn't done things God's way. And that's when we get in trouble. I mean, it's not like God stuttered. I mean, he gives us his book for a reason, right? Um, And so we need to make sure that we're clear on what God desires us to do. And God's word was very clear that it had to be carried by Levites in a prescribed way on their shoulders without touching it, not on an ox cart. And they got that idea, as we said earlier, from the Philistines. And the idea is, well, it worked for them. Why not bring it into the over here to Israel? Or it works in the world. Why not bring it into the church? I think any time the church starts imitating the world in its worship, they can't expect the Lord to give his blessing in the way he would if they weren't doing that. So we need to make sure that that our, our worship is one of one that's honoring to the Lord. And then lastly here you see Mikhail's response kind of looking at her husband out the window. Man, he's gone nuts, you know. Probably don't get fanatical here, David, was her response. Uh, she was a spectator. She wasn't a participant. Uh, she should have been down there, but she wasn't. You know, she loved David the warrior, but she could not sympathize with David the worshiper. She didn't like that. And you see that a lot of times. Uh, when God changes somebody and all of a sudden, you know, maybe he just changes half of the marriage. <laughs> One person gets saved and the other person doesn't. And they start to change. And boy, you know, you have to be careful with that. Because, you know, you don't want to, you, know, you can't just say, well, that's tough luck, you know. <laughs> I'm a Christian now and I'm going to do things this way. No, you have to be patient with that unloved or that uh, uh, unsaved spouse and uh, kind of bring them along. And I'm sure that she was filled with pride and embarrassment and all that stuff. And then we saw how Obed-Edom, he delighted in God. We're not even sure uh, who he was. A lot of people say, like I said before, probably a Levite who lived nearby. Um, But he had no problem bringing this ark into his house. Um, Now, I don't know about you, but I would think twice about that. Because what had just happened? <laughs> you know, I mean, somebody's dead because they mishandled this ark, and you want to bring it to my house? Nah, I don't think so. You know, uh, I got curious grandkids running around, things like that. I don't know. That's probably not a good idea. Uh, but you know, he's just all for it. Hey, no, not a problem. He was totally comfortable living with God in the midst of his home, the presence of God right there. And it says in verse eleven that the Lord blessed the man and his household. And so, he had something to teach David in that he wanted the, the ark because of the holy presence of God. And uh, I think that what's, that's it's an important thing for us to understand. Well, when you, th- you think of this, this chapter, you know, you have to stop and ask yourself, who is your audience when you're worshiping? Is it, is it people in the pew? Is it people in... The platform, is it, who is it? Is it God? I think the Jews have a great idea when they began their Sabbath at sundown the night before. Did you ever think of that? That's when they celebrate Friday night. They start at sundown. That's when the Sabbath starts for them. And it's a good 
I think it's a good practice. I mean, we can take that practice and we can say, well, when does our Sunday mornings begin? <laughs> you know, uh, do we want to, maybe we should start that practice. <laughs> you know what, <laughs> Saturday at sundown, I'm going to start preparing my heart for worship on Sunday morning. Because it'd be a whole different experience if you prepared your heart and you prepared your soul to come here and worship with God's people on Sunday morning versus dragging yourself out of bed Sunday morning, go, oh, here we go. I hope the music's good. I hope I really need something for me today. And you drag yourself here and you're halfway sleeping through the service because you've been up till 2 in the morning, whatever. You know, that's not, that's not wise. That's not a good thing. You know, if you had a big interview for a job or you had something like that, you probably wouldn't be up that, that late the night before. You'd probably want to get your rest. You'd probably go dressed appropriately. You'd, you'd want to make a good impression. You know, all those things. And, well, we're coming to worship God on a Sunday morning. And so it's good to spend at least a portion of Saturday night getting yourself prepared for that. You know, maybe, you know, we're, we're, we're an expositional church. We go through the Bible. So maybe read the text. Saturday night before you go to bed, and maybe read it again Sunday morning before you come to church. Um, another way to answer the, the question of whether or not you're coming expecting to meet with God on a Sunday morning is ask yourself this question. Would you worship any differently if Christ was physically in our church Sunday morning where you could see him? <laughs> I read this little story, Pastor A.J. Gordon and something happened to this guy that transformed his ministry. He tells this story. He says he dreamed he was in the pulpit, ready to, to deliver his Sunday morning message when a stranger with a regal yet loving look att attracted his attention. As he preached, his eyes kept returning to that unique guest. While the closing hymn was being sung, he decided to speak with him. But before he could get to the back door, the unknown man was gone. As the dream continued, this same person came back again at the evening service. Once more, he slipped out before the minister could shake his hand. Turning to one of his deacons, the pastor inquired, Who was that man? Oh, didn't you recognize him? The deacon replied, That was Jesus of Nazareth. You mean Christ himself was listening to me? What did he say? exclaimed the preacher. And before the deacon could reply... Gordon awoke. It had all been so real that he could hardly believe he had been dreaming. And he said for the first time, he fully appreciated the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is present in a special way when people gather together for worship. And it changed his ministry. You know, if Christ walked in here right now, would would our would we change? Would we change our demeanor? Would we, I'm sure we would. But you know what I mean. He is here. Would you sing any differently if Christ were listening? Would you worship any differently if Christ were watching? Would you listen to his word being preached more attentively if he was in the chair next to you? He is. The question is, are you aware of his presence? Do you come expecting him to be present, expecting to meet with him as we gather in his name? Could you, like the Israelites of old, be hoping that God's presence would be like a good luck charm? 
if you go to church, maybe God will make your plans work out for your life. Or maybe like the Philistines, that the presence of God could make you uncomfortable. Or maybe Abinadab, being in God's presence doesn't affect you in the least. Or Uzzah, maybe you're just too familiar with God. You treat as commonplace that which is sacred. Or maybe on occasion you become like David. You wanted God, God's presence, but when you got a glimpse of his absolute holiness, you drew back. And you weren't so sure you wanted to be that close to God. Or even Mikhail, who could just be a spectator, who doesn't believe in getting too fanatical about worship. Or maybe Obed-Edom, do you welcome the presence of the living God into your home and life, resulting that it will end up in a blessing that God has for you? You know, we need to be, I think, more attuned to what God desires of us as a church when we come together to worship him. You know, I think we do a lot of things right, but I think also we need to be reminded that we're here to worship the Lord. And we want to do it in a way, obviously, that's always honoring to him.